So for today, we are continuing our series in Esther chapter 2. We are in this book study, Invisible God, Invisible Hands. And for today's message, is entitled Divine Setup. And here is the outline of our passage, and I hope that you would uh, pay attention as we follow the flow of the story. First, we'll go through the context, and then the characters, then the context, and conspiracy. So let's begin the context. Chapter 2, verse 1, But after King Ahasuerus, or King Xerxes' anger had subsided, he began thinking about Vashti and what she had done and the decree he had made. In Esther chapter 1, we learn about King Ahasuerus or Xerxes of Persia. And history tells us that Persia is the greatest or the largest empire in the ancient world. And Xerxes at the time is the most powerful man who ever lived at the time. And to show off his great wealth and his um, power, he held an extravagant and excessive banquet for all of his officials and government and nobles and the military leaders. And that banquet lasted for six months. And after that, he hosted another party open to all. And everyone in Susa, rich or poor, they are welcome to this week-long party. And on the last day of the event, Xerxes got drunk and called for his queen Vashti. And the king wanted her to be the grand finale of the party. And so he wanted to flaunt the stunning beauty of his wife to his guests. But something unexpected happened. Queen Vashti refused and turned down the king. And so the king got embarrassed by his wife in the eyes of everyone. And so to save face, what did Xerxes do? He followed the advice of his, uh, of his officials and deposed the queen. And that opened the door for another queen to be crowned, leading us to Esther chapter 2. Again, during this time, the anger had subsided already of the king, and he began thinking about Vashti. He began to miss her, and probably he was standing there at the place where he held this great banquet and thinking he lost his queen. But did you know that actually Bible scholars tell us that there, were, there are at least four years in between Esther chapter 1 and Esther chapter 2? What happened in between? King Xerxes waged war with Greece. Actually, he continued the war that his father Darius started. You see, 10 years prior, King Darius attempted to conquer Greece during the first Persian invasion of Greece. And now Xerxes had the opportunity because his father failed. And so Xerxes now had the opportunity to prove himself that he is greater than his father. So in 480 BC, King Xerxes personally led the second Persian invasion of Greece. Do you know the story of 300? The six-pack guys say, oh, oh, who watched that? Yeah, diba? So this is, yeah, at least marami, uh, may mga ilan dito nanonood. So these six-pack guys, probably it's fictional kasi puro six-pack, impossible talaga yun, diba? But, but that is part of the story. King Xerxes um, invaded Greece during that war. And, at, and during this time, Persia, on the first battle, they won. But somehow, two years after, they continued fighting, and what happened? They lost the war. Kaya nga may 300 part di ba? The Rise of an Empire. It was a naval, uh, naval battle, but that's uh, one of the final battles where in Persia lost. And so, King Xerxes lost the war, and the whole Persian army suffered heavily, militarily and financially. And worst of all, King Xerxes um, got back to Persia defeated. And so here takes a pause, and the camera focuses on something else and started to introduce to us the two of the main characters of the story, verses 5 to 7. The first is Mordecai. At that time, there was a Jewish man in the fortress of Zusa whose name was Mordecai, son of Jair. He was from the tribe of Benjamin and who was a descendant of Kish and Shimei. You see, Mordecai is a gentle name. Some say that Mordecai is connected to the name Marduk, who is the chief god of Babylon. But then the author specifically tells us that Mordecai was a Jew. Now, why is there a Jew in Susa? Verse 6 tells us, His family had been among those with King 
chain of Judah had been exiled from Jerusalem to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. You see, Mordecai's family was part of the second batch of the Jewish people who were exiled in Babylon. So look at this timeline. In four, um, so the other side is the Persian rule, but years prior to that, there was this Babylonian deportation. So King Nebuchadnezzar brought all the Jews from Jerusalem after they defeated them. They brought, uh, Nebuchadnezzar brought them to Babylon. But eventually Babylon was conquered by Persia. And so Mordecai's family was there. It was said that it was uh, Kish, the great grandfather of Mordecai, who experienced the Babylon deportation. So si Mordecai, he was already born in Persia. And at that time, um, sinabi rin dito, Mordecai has a connection with King Saul. Both of them were from the tribe of Benjamin. And it, interestingly enough, the great-grandfather of Mordecai is Kish. And for King Saul, meron ang tatay niya naman, Kish naman yung pangalan. So, medyo similar. And usually what happens, when you have the same names, it means you belong to the same tribe. So that is the point of the, the, the writer. And now, um, why is this important? We will see it later on, the significance of Mordecai's connection to King Saul as we move forward in the uh, next chapters. But what else do we know about Mordecai? It says in verse 19 to 21, he was sitting at the king's gate. In other words, Mordecai is a civil servant or a government official in Persia. And he is already serving the empire. And here's another important detail given in verse 7. This man, Mordecai, had a very beautiful and lovely young cousin, Hadassah, who was also called Esther. When her family and mother died, Mordecai adopted her into his family and raised her as his own daughter. And this leads us to our next character in the story, who is Esther. Esther was the daughter of Abihail, who was Mordecai's uncle. Mordecai had adopted his younger cousin, Esther. You see, Mordecai was much more older than Esther, so he adopted her when Esther became an orphan. And what else could we uh, know about Esther? It says that Esther was beautiful and lovely. In the other translation, it says that Esther was beautiful in form and face. So she has the looks and she has the figure. And Esther goes by two names. First is Hadassah, which is a Hebrew name, a symbol for peace and joy. And the other is Esther, Esther a Persian name which means star. Other, uh, other scholars say that she's also connected to the goddess Ishtar, that, that name, the goddess of love and war. Now here's another important detail about Esther. Verse 10 says, Esther had not told anyone of her national identity, nationality and family background because Mordecai instructed her. And even after um, Esther lived uh, long and, and, and uh, have a position in the empire, it's said here that Esther continued to keep her family background and nationality a secret. And so she was still following Mordecai's direction, just as she did when she lived in her home, uh, in his home. You see, it's quite interesting that one of the th key theme in Esther is the theme of hiddenness the theme of hiddenness. As mentioned earlier, Esther hid her identity. She hid her nationality as a Jew. At the same time, in Hebrew, Esther has a root word, because in Hebrew, it's a, a consonant. Eh? And the root word ng name ng Esther, it means hidden, to conceal, and to hide. So that is the, the style of the author, to signify that the theme in Esther, at least it's uh, the theme of hiddenness. And what else is hidden in the book of Esther? It's actually God. God is hidden in the book of Esther. Esther is the only book that doesn't mention the name God. God is behind the scenes. And God is somehow the invisible hand working behind. But here's the key lesson in the book of Esther. Overall, in the midst of this hiddenness, here is the key lesson of Esther. God may be hidden, but his plan is not hindered. God may be unseen, but he is not absent. God may be invisible, but he is not impotent. That is the key theme in Esther. You see, God has complete control over his people's individual and overall circumstances. 
And he is at work behind the scenes, creating divine setups to accomplish his greater purpose. So I hope as we continue to study the book of Esther, let's put this in mind. Let's remember this theme. And here in chapter 2, we couldn't really appreciate yet how, God, how God's plan would unfold because chapter 1 and chapter 2 is just the introduction or setting up. It's like a playing, uh, it's like the game of chess wherein the, uh, uh, the pieces are just being uh, positioned for the greater game, for the greater battle that will come. And so that is Esther chapter 2. It's just a divine setup wherein God, his invisible hands, arranging everything for the, uh, towards the climax and the finale. Now at this point, let's look at the person of Mordecai. Think about it. Why is Mordecai still in Persia and not in Jerusalem? You see, back in 538 BC, King Cyrus already made a decree. He allowed all the Jews he said, you are free to go back to Jerusalem. You can go, and I am giving you everything. I'm giving you the freedom. I'm giving you resources. Go back to Jerusalem. But somehow, for some reason, Mordecai and his family and most of the Jews stayed. You see, that decree happened 60 years ago. And so Mordecai was probably in his teens or early 20s, and Esther was not yet born. So Mordecai and his parents, they decided to stay in Jerusalem, with the rest, with most of the people, of, with, with most of the Jewish people. Why? Because they are already comfortable living in Persia. They have their businesses, they have their government positions, they enjoy their freedom. And so for Mordecai and the family, there's no incentive for them to go back to Jerusalem. Now, Imagine, you will have to give up everything. And for Mordecai and the family, they will have to face the reality that traveling to Jerusalem is very dangerous, unlike now. You can fly easily, but before, it's dangerous. There are no uh, stopovers. You could uh, be robbed. You could die along the road. So it's very difficult to travel, very dangerous. And so there's, there's no incentive for them. And when they arrive, it, they won't be resting there because the city is in ruins. You have to rebuild and they will face hardship. So the point is they have no incentive going back to Jerusalem. But, and so they realize since they have no connection to the land of Israel, there's no point of going there. Just like me, my father is a Chinese, my mom is from Bacolod, but in reality, I don't have um, an inclination to go to, back to China or, or live in the Visayas region because our family is already established here in Metro Manila. So that's the situation there. Now, Mordecai's decision in Persia uh, to stay in Persia was understandable. Very practical. Bakit ko papahirapan sarili ko? Very practical. But in doing so, technically, Mordecai and the family disobeyed God's clear command to return to Israel because there's the prophetic command already from Jeremiah and Isaiah that says, by this time, you have to go back. But somehow, their decision, it's a disobedience to God's clear command. But the text did not highlight that disobedience in a sense. But here's the point. Mordecai is not perfect in his character. Can say they, he disobeyed, he has flaws, he has shortcomings, but then there, this is where God's providence come in. You see, in terms of Mordecai's disobedience, it is God who overrides his people's disobedience and use it for his divine setup to fulfill his greater plan. So you see, if Mordecai uh, went back to Jerusalem, he would not have been able to fulfill God's plan moving forward. But of course, we could say, or maybe God could raise someone else instead of Mordecai. Yes, that's possible. But the point is, despite Mordecai's disobedience, God overrode it, and he still used it, the imperfection of his people, to move forward to his plan. And so again, we could see that uh, in the midst of God's people unfaithfulness, God remained faithful. As God's word said, we may be faithless, but he remains faithful. And God uses imperfect people to accomplish his perfect plan. And this is an encouragement for me and I hope for you. Who among you here are perfect? Sino ditang imperfect? All of us. Many of us. And I praise God for this truth because in the mid, despite our imperfection, God 
can override it, and he can use us. In our imperfection, despite our sin, he can use us for his glory. I remember the story of Pastor Pete Scazzero. He says, God uses the ugly parts of our lives to fulfill his good plans. You see, Pastor uh, Pastor Pete started a church in New York with just a few people. And by God's grace, that ministry grew and then eventually planted churches. But somewhere along the way, he got so busy with ministry and he, in the process of doing many good things, he neglected his family and even ignored his personal issues. And he then started to have relational problems. He was always angry, he was uh, having relational strain with people and even his family. And sadly, the church split. One time, sabi Pastor Pete, there were 200 people, no? And the uh, church is split, ang natira sa kanya, the 50 people. So the 150 people, sumama do sa isang pastor. Very sad. He was very depressed, very down. What happened? Why, God? I'm doing my best. I'm doing this ministry. Why? And so he felt deeply hurt, depressed, betrayed. But there's more. Soon after that, his wife approached him and said, I quit. I don't want to attend the church that you are pastoring. And Pastor Peter was shocked. Why? And Jerry, his wife, told him, you know, you're so busy, you're so focused on ministry that I feel I'm a single mom taking care of our four children. I quit. And so with that breaking process, Pastor Pete realized that he has to repent. He has to turn around. And and it took time, of course, a process of healing and, and seeking God and restoring that relationship. But in the midst of that, by God's grace, Pastor Pete repented and found a new way to, to return to God. And it started a new process towards transformation, towards healing, which impacted his life, his family, and ministry. And also God used Pastor Pete's experiences, the good, the bad, and the ugly, to start and develop the emotionally healthy discipleship program. And today God is using that to bless churches around the world. It helps transform people. It helps people to develop a deep and, and be transformed from the inside out and to be faithful followers of Christ. You see, God used imperfect people. God used the, the good and even the bad and the ugly things in our lives for his glory. So I hope and pray that wherever you are right now, especially if you feel that uh, Maybe God at this time could no longer use me. So ashamed of my past, how could people accept me? Don't be discouraged because God said, I can use you, but you have to go back to God. You have to let Christ cleanse you. You have to let God start that work of transformation in your heart. God is a very willing partner, but you have to do you're part of the work as well. Surrender your life to God. Now let's go back to the story. And at this time, we'll go to the third, is the context in verses eight to 20. So when the king's orders and his decrees were proclaimed and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, the custody of Haggai, Esther was also taken into the king's palace and harem and put in the custody of Haggai who had charge of the women. The Jewish historian Josephus says that there are 400 women who were gathered together across the empire. That's too many and it's quite um, anomalous because usually when they select uh, the new queen, they would usually pick them from the, no- from the noble families, from the richer families. But then they, they had this uh, empire wide search, and so there were so many young women. Now notice the phrase, Esther was taken. It is in a passive voice. You see, in the original Hebrew text, taken means to get, to carry away, to snatch, or to capture. In other words, Esther had little or no choice over her circumstances. Now please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying Esther is not responsible. I'm not saying that Esther is just totally a victim of her circumstances. I'm not saying that, but 
Because in reality, we are responsible for our choices, we are responsible for our actions, and we will be held accountable. But as far as the story is concerned, as far as the writer is emphasizing this, the writer is saying Esther had little control, little choice over the circumstance. So we have to be careful to, not to pass judgment right away. Did Esther compromise? Probably. We could say, oh, why, why Daniel? Daniel stood up. Daniel refused to eat. Daniel did this and they're three friends. But Esther, she did the totally op- opposite. She, she just said yes in everything. Yes, we can argue with that, but at least, but at this time, the text is silent with that, and so we have to let the text speak for itself. The point of the text is, Esther was taken. And interestingly, in chapter 2, Esther was taken three times. Verse 7, Esther was taken by Mordecai as his own daughter. Esther's parents died. Did she have control over that? No. That's a sad reality. It happened to her. Verse 8, Esther was taken into the king's palace in Harem. Did Esther have a choice? Sadly, no. Either she go or she die. And verse 16, Esther was taken to the king and the royal palace. You see, the point that the author is trying to make here is that Esther was weak, like the other women. Esther was weak and vulnerable and easily exploited by people in power. She has little or no choice and control over what happens to her. How about you? Are you caught up in a situation where you have no choice or no control? Are you right now vulnerable and weak because of your situation? Think about your life. Perhaps you're still young and your, your parents got separated. However, you want them to stay together, but you had no choice. You just have to live with that reality. Or maybe you have financial difficulties because of the pandemic, business went bad and everything shut down and you have to give up a lot and lose a lot in the process. You have no control. Perhaps some of you are, some of you experience death in the family or maybe you have a severe physical illness that that radically change the way you live now and, and the dynamics in your family, relationally, emotionally, financially. Or perhaps some of you, you have a family member who is who's addicted to, who got addicted to alcohol, to, to gambling, pornography. See, so difficult, if you, especially if it's your parents, no, to live in, a, in that kind of household. Despite the things that you want to do, you have no choice because you're still dependent to, you have little control and you have little resources also to get away. Or maybe, maybe, some of you here have experienced abuse, exploitation, you were taken advantage of by the people you trust, maybe your parents or the people in authority. You see, that's the sad reality of the world that we are living in. However, we want to control our circumstances. Still bad things, evil things could happen to us. And so this is what Esther experienced. Verse 12, before each young woman was taken to the king's bed, she was given the prescribed 12 months of beauty treatment, six months of oil of myrrh, followed by six months with special perfumes and ointments. You see, this is, a, this is something that uh, we could say, good? I don't know. What do you think? Is it good or bad? Is this situation good for Esther? Wow, beauty treatment, all expense paid, one year. Maybe some of you will say, it's good. And eventually, there's a chance for Esther to become queen and it will, she will live happily ever after. You could say that. But in reality, that's a terrible situation for Esther. Why? Because first, Esther will be taken away from her family, from her home. She will be secluded in the king's harem and he won't, she won't have the freedom to go out. And for one year, she will be uh, with these 400 women to make them as beautiful as possible to, for them to smell as good as possible. You see, the oil of 
mer here is it's actually used for in the song of solomon it's actually uh, an oil used for uh, to be uh, sexually attractive that's that's how it's used back then you see they are being readied for a one night of immoral sex with a gentle king and so these are helpless women they are like lambs being fattened for slaughter that's the reality that Esther has to face. Sometimes we, we just look past over these things. We look at the story of Esther. Oh, very nice. And she, she would become queen. And then we told it even to our Sunday school, the Sunday school version of Esther. But understand the reality because the Persian Empire is so evil. What did the book of Daniel tell, uh, say that then? These empires are beasts. Actually, the Persian Empire is like a bear eating a devouring meat. So this is a scary and evil empire. And so again, the point is, this is a sad reality for those women, as one scholar points out. And I'm sorry to say this, but this is one scholar who said, you see, this is not an ordinary beauty pageant. It was a sex contest. And the winner will be determined by how good she is in bed. That's a sad reality. You see, this is the heartless and abusive system of the Persian Empire at work. Evil at its core. Worldwide evil. People in power exploit these weak and vulnerable women. And sadly, that is the same in our culture today. It's about money, sex, and power. And I'm sorry to say this, and this may sound insensitive, but one author said, we live in a world where weak people exist for what they can do for the powerful people. Pretty girls were sex objects for powerful men. It's a sad reality. Back in the Persian Empire, you may say, oh, buti na lang lalaki ako. No, hindi ka pa rin makakatakas. Because just as many women, they import to the palace for them to be uh, beautified, to have a one night with the king. Boys were also transported to the palace to be eunuchs. And what it means to be a eunuch, they will remove your genitals so that you, will, you won't have sexual relationship with other women. And then you can serve the king. That's a horrible situation to be in. Again, this is the sad reality. That is how broken and horrible the world Esther was living in that time. And it is the same for us today. We live in a world that is broken by sin. The powerful people take advantage of the weak. Now you may say, yes, oh, I agree, I'm weak. And the powerful people take advantage of me. But think of it another way. We are also in positions of power. And there are people also under us and what are the things that we have done or that we have failed to do that, that resulted in exploiting and abusing people? With our co-workers, with our kasambahay, how we treat our wait the waiters who serve us with food, how we treat the guards, how we treat the poor. We may say, yes, we are the weak, we are the victims, we are those exploited. But in reality, we have to be careful and see we have been also contributors to those people in power by what we do and what we fail to do, that we also abuse others. So I hope this is something that we could reflect on and ask God for forgiveness. Again, Esther lived in that broken world and the question is, where is God? How could God let this happen? And as for Esther and Mordecai, they were Jews, they were chosen people. And the question is, Lord, how can you allow this, this thing to happen to your covenant people? And so this question is the writer, is what the writer invites us to wrestle with. Now think about it. God's invisible hand uh, is at work in setting up Esther to be the next queen. But here is something difficult to accept. You see, the deliverance of God's people will somehow depend on one strange and ungodly night, one strange and ungodly immoral night. And now the question is, why would God allow such a horrible and ugly thing, a wicked thing to happen? 
Let's continue. The next morning, Esther was brought to the harem, the king's wife. And so it says here that Esther was transferred. After one night with the king, she was transferred to the other harem, which is a sad change of status. And what happens after the one night, the king will say, bye-bye. I'll call you again when I remember you. Don't call me, I'll call you. So asa ka pa kung tatawagin ka ng king, di ba? But that's, that's very sad. And after the night of these girls with the king, they're transferred, and you see these 300 women, they won't be allowed to get married again. They won't have normal families. They will be there in seclusion. They won't see the king. They will live as if they were widows. Yes, they may have children, but then they will live uh, families that are normal. And as, even if Esther was not chosen, she would also end up practically like a widow. And so again, if you are Esther, would you want that? Of course not. This is an awful situation. And so no wonder Mordecai would walk near the courtyard to find out about Esther and what's happening to her every day. Now, despite these difficulties and uh, experiences, Esther also experienced favor somehow in her life. First, she was favored by Haggai. Haggai um, experienced, uh, sorry about that. Haggai favored Esther. Haggai was very impressed with Esther, treated her kindly, and she ordered a special menu for her. She fast-tracked her mindset ni Haggai. She's a very good candidate to be the queen, and so she liked her. Naging favorite siya ni Haggai, and so she made a special menu, yung diet niya, and then gave her special maids chosen from the palace. And when it was even time for Esther, to go to the king, Haggai coached her and give her some advice what to do, how to please the king. You see, for some reason, Esther saw or, or experienced this favor because marami naman magagandang women eh, and Haggai could have chosen them. But then, this is God's divine setup. And then there's also other people who admired Esther. She was admired by everyone who saw her in verse 15. And more importantly, verse 16 tells us the king chose Esther. Esther was taken to King Xerxes at the royal palace in the early winter of the seventh year of his reign. And the king loved Esther more than any other young women. And it says here that he was so delighted and a royal crown was set on her head and she was declared queen instead of Vashti. And so you may say, yay! Esther won, won the pageant. Is this something cause for celebration? I think again. You see, the verse says yes, Esther was loved by the, the king, loved Esther, but it doesn't imply an emotional bond and genuine love. Sometimes when we read the text, we, we romanticize it and we try to put in our cultural lens. No? But here, it doesn't imply emotional and genuine love. The word love here is the same word used in 2 Samuel verse chapter 13. Do you know the story? King David's son Amnon, he loved Tamar, but that love actually is a lust. He loved Tamar to the point that he lusted after her and eventually raped her. And after he raped her, he said his love turned into intense hate. That's what's happening here. Esther may have won the king's favor, but from King Xerxes' perspective, Esther is only an object of display and a tool to satisfy his lust and pleasure. Yes, Esther may have the crown, but it doesn't signify power, and he, she's no more powerful than how Queen Vashti enjoyed. She's also fragile in a deep, uh, deeply vulnerable position. She only exists at the pleasure of the king. And so af- for this, this is the reality that Esther had to endure. But then this is also celebrated by the king. He gave a great banquet at Esther's honor. Why? This time I can show off again. I have my ego rebuilt again. I have a beautiful queen. I am already a person in power, a person that you should admire at the expense of a young woman named Esther. Think about it. Esther is now a queen in Persia, but God's invisible hand set her in that position. But here's the reality. Esther won't realize God's plan until after about five long years. So imagine, you're Esther. 
you won't see the king, tatawagin ka lang niya kung gusto niya for another night. And then, okay, goodbye. Hindi ka ulit kakausapin. For Esther had to endure that difficulty living in this evil and worldly system. And what could Esther do? She's part of God's people, God's covenant people. See, all she could do is just to trust, wait, hope, and endure. Perhaps God's salvation will come. Is this, is this year, ito na ba? No, no, year one, year two, year three, year four, year five. It's a long and difficult path for Esther. You see, church, the same is true with us. We may be in a challenge today that we feel that we are so helpless and hopeless and we don't know if there's an end to it. But then the same is true for us. God calls us to wait, to trust, to endure, to hope. Because again, God is working behind the scenes even though we are experiencing bad things. God is working behind the scenes and he is creating divine setups for his greater purpose. And not, not necessarily for us to be comfortable, but for his greater purpose. You see, I remember a story of our friend. My wife and I recently got to know their family when they started the church attending CBCP during the pandemic. And they shared about their father who already passed away. You see, their father struggled with heroin, cocaine, and alcohol for 18 years. Started using drugs when he was 13. And every time this father was caught by the police, he was immediately released. Kasi sabi niya, tatay ko si general. And so this father lived that kind of life for so many years and that impacted the family and even the children. I could imagine how it looked like for the children to live in those kinds of setup. Because of the addiction, of course, the marriage and family was badly affected and suffered so much, they lost also their money. And at age 31, this father tried to commit suicide. He locked himself in a room for three days, have a pistol ready to pull the trigger. And then when he was about to shoot himself, he, he, he saw a, a, a Christian book and he started to read from cover to cover and asking, uh, and, and, and uh, during the time he, he was, uh, Sorry, in story. He was asking, Lord, are you real? Nakakita siya ng Christian book. So binasa yung cover to cover, are you real? But then, na-realize niya when he was about to kill himself, he heard a voice. Adrian, anak, mahal kita. Adrian, my son, I love you. And with that, he, he realized that it's some voice of God leading him and he went out of the room and never touched drugs or alcohol again the rest of his life. Of course, there's a process that, that God used to transform him and the family. And then God started to work through the life of Adrian and the whole family. And they, by God's grace, Adrian served and became a missionary. And he relocated the family to Tagaytay and started a home to help those who were drug dependents to recover. They started a home, not a rehab. It's a home to help people rise from the pit by God's grace and be transformed. You see, God is at work in our lives despite our imperfections, despite that shame, that the suffering that we have. But the challenging part there is we don't know how long we have to wait to be there. And I hope that if there's something that you would, that I want you to get out of this message, I want you to not give up and just hope. I don't know what your problems or challenges, your concern tomorrow for your business, your family, your health, or the difficulties that you have. But I pray that you would have that hope. The fourth Conspiracy. Conspiracy against the king. Verse 21. One day Mordecai was on duty at the king's gate and two of the king's eunuch were guards at the door and the king's private quarters and became angry and plotted to assassinate the king. But Mordecai heard the plot and reported and gave information to Queen Esther. You see, this happened not long after Esther became queen. Mordecai was at the right place at the right time. 
Coincidence? Divine setup. Mordecai was there and, and he heard about the, the assassination attempt and so he, she, uh, he informed Queen Esther and Queen Esther told the king about it and made sure that Mordecai get the credit for the report so that if it's true, Mordecai would be rewarded. And so the king investigated and it was proven true and the two men were sentenced to die because of treason. But how? By impaling on the pole. You see, that's one of the worst way to die. Look at this photo. Human barbecue. That's how brutal the empire was. Actually, yung sabi ng nila, impaling the pole, this is the precursor from crucifixion. Ito uh, yung ano, eh, prototype ng crucifixion. It, the crucifixion was just perfected by the Romans. So it started from Assyria and then Persia and perfected by the Romans. A slow, painful death. That's how ruthless and inhumane the king was. That's how evil this emperor was. But after Mordecai saved the king, chapter 2 closes with these words. This was all recorded in the book of the history of the king Xerxes' reign. What's missing? Sanya reward. Where's the reward? I saved the king's life. Mordecai would say, I saved the king's life. But there's no reward. And this is quite surprising because historians tell us that Persian kings were so good in giving benefits and giving uh, reward and honoring the people, especially who, those who proved their, their loyalty to the king. But there's no reward in this time. Now, if you were Mordecai, how would you feel? You saved the king's life. Perhaps you risked your life to do so. But then you were forgotten. You were overlooked. What would you do? Lord, it's unfair. Where's my reward? It's natural for us. Now think about your life. Do you experience the same today? You work so hard in your company or you serve in ministry or the things that you need to do, but you work so tirelessly expecting at least appreciation, but voila. People look past over your contribution and effort. Ni thank you. Would you be discouraged? I would be discouraged because that's natural for us. But then it's quite interesting that for Mordecai, what happened to him was not an accident. It was a divine setup because the invisible hand delayed the reward of Mordecai and his reward and recognition. Why? We will find out next time. But eventually, this Mordecai, despite not receiving a reward, continued in his position. I quit my position. But then he just pursued. He just continued serving and waited. Again, same with Queen Esther. Mordecai won't realize his reward. The reason why he was delayed, he won't realize it until after five years. Similar to Esther. And similar to Esther, he is just called to Trust, wait, hope, endure. Dear church, I don't know where you are, what, what you are going through right now, but I pray that you would just trust, hope, wait, endure. Because the invisible hand behind the scene is working to fulfill his greater purpose for our lives, for the good of his people, for the glory of his name. Before we close, let me highlight this important thing. Both Mordecai and Esther are types of Christ. And this shows us, the two characters, shows us a picture of Christ. For Mordecai, he was a Jew in exile. He doesn't belong. He's an outsider. In, in the same way, Christ came into the world, but the world did not receive him. Mordecai showed acts of kindness and righteousness, but unrewarded. In his life, Christ lived righteously, but he was unrewarded, unappreciated, hated, and rejected. He was even crucified, forgotten by men, forsaken by God. And as for Esther, Esther was divinely set up to be the deliverer of God's people. And similarly, Christ our Lord was sent to be the savior of the world. And to be the deliverer of God's people, Esther has to suffer abuse 
and injustice in the hands of evil and powerful people. In the same way, the Savior of our world suffered evil, abuse, and injustice. As Acts 8.32 tells us, he was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb is silent before the shears, he did not open his mouth, he was humiliated and received no justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. And finally, in becoming the queen, to be the future of to be the future deliverer of God's people, Esther had no little choice or control over her, her circumstances. She had to endure living in an empire broken and corrupted by sin and evil. But here's something beautiful about our Lord. Christ knows. Christ is in full control. But he made a choice. Esther has no choice. Eh? But Christ our Lord made a choice and fully embraced suffering, death, Shame. The wrath of God, he fully drank the cup, emptied it. For what reason? So that you and I could no longer live, should no longer live in this ugly, broken, decaying, evil world. That's the kindness, the grace of our Savior. And through the cross, through that ugly manifestation of evil, of inhumanity, shaming our Savior, impaling him on a pole, naked, bleeding to death, one drop of blood at a time, Christ offered his life willingly so that you and I could live a life of favor, a life of fullness in the presence of God. And I hope and pray that as we end this message today, let's continue to reflect in this reality. See, God may be hidden, but his plan is not hindered. God may be unseen, but he is not absent. God may be invisible, but he is not impotent. God has complete control over his people's individual and overall circumstances. He is in control of your circumstances, whether you realize it or not. And I hope and pray that you would always remember that he is working behind the scenes to create divine setups, to accomplish the greater purpose for your life. So dear church, this is our call today. Trust, wait. Hope, endure. What will be your choice? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the story of Esther. Lord, we may not fully understand why, why things have to go through this way. Things that we expect don't happen things that we desire to control, we lose control. Things that we don't expect don't come. Rewards that we are waiting for were held back. We don't know why. Lord, in the midst of our suffering, just help us, Lord, to, to trust, knowing that you are good and trustworthy. That in the midst of these things, you are working for your people for your glory, for the good of your kingdom, for, for the blessing and expansion of your kingdom. And I pray, O oh God, that you help us to have that spirit of trusting, waiting, hoping, enduring, one day at a time, one moment at a time, especially, Lord, when we are discouraged. Father, forgive us as well that we have been in positions of power, that we have failed to be your instruments of justice and righteousness to the poor, to the needy, to the last and the least. Forgive us, O oh God. Help us to return to you. Transform our hearts from the inside out. Lord, help us to really be salt and light of this world, to put you on display. May we be Christ-like in every way. And Lord, as we 
come together as one church and one community, continue to help us encourage one another because in reality, things may get worse even before it gets better. Lord, help us just to have that spirit from you. Thank you, Lord, for the assurance. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the assurance that you are seated at the right hand of the Father, that you endure the cross so that you can give a life that you want us to live and that you are now seated at the right hand of God, praying on our behalf, interceding for us. And even the Holy Spirit in us is praying with words of groaning and gives us that spirit to cry out to you, Abba Father, help us, Lord, to live with this reality. Give us strength of heart. Give us strength of mind, strength of character, strength of spirit to fulfill your plan for us, to carry our cross faithfully, to love you more than our lives, to love others as Christ loved us. Thank you, Lord. Now receive this benediction. May the God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless in the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Amen and amen.